Welcome. You're listening to Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, the podcast that pulls back the curtains in your mind. We like to shed a little light on why you're thinking what you're thinking. Everyone has a choice in life, in what and how they think. Together, we're going to focus on high-functioning habits. There is no more time to live with any sort of regret. Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, the inspirational podcast for the inspired. Let's get into today's show with your host, Shelley R. Shearer. Hello world, Shelly Shearer here and welcome to the show. I am so pleased to introduce our guest here today. You would have seen my posts on social media. Marek Smyslowski is a Polish-born entrepreneur and executive focused on online businesses in frontier and emerging markets. He is the author of Chasing Black Unicorns, How Building the Amazon of Africa Put Me on Interpol's Most Wanted List. He co-founded Jumia Travel, Africa's biggest hotel booking portal, listed on the New York Stock Exchange as part of Jumia Group and HotelOnline.co, a travel technology company. In 2014, he was chosen as one of the 10 most important people in tech by IT News Africa magazine. He is a lead mentor at Google's Launchpad and World Bank's Excel Africa program. Merrick, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. So you probably get asked this right out of the gate, why'd you write the book? <laughs> <laughs> um, so many reasons at once. Um, I guess the, the, the less, least egoistic part of why I wrote this book is because I wanted to write a book that really tells it all and burns all the bridges because at some point you just don't care. Mm-hmm. And, and also because I realized there's just too much polished biographies in business, which just are written by PR departments of a CEO company. Um, and there's really not too many refreshing books where I just say it the way it is. Um, but on the egoistic side, I just always wanted to write a book because I think it's one of those things you just want to do at some point in your life. Um, I never knew it was going to be that fast. Um, you want to do this because it's one of the few things you can't just buy. I mean, technically you can just buy a book, you know, hire a ghostwriter, publish yourself and so on. But I'm talking about publishing the, the old way, which is really painful, but nobilitating as well. And then two more things happened. Obviously I, I moved to Nigeria at some point in my life. And when I was looking for books, I wanted to write a book that I then in the end read, uh, that I wanted to read a book that I read, uh, that I wrote in the end, meaning, mm-hmm. A business book about running business in Africa because there was nothing like that. There was only adventure books about Africa that I could find or, or some very theoretical books written by university professors about the macroeconomics of Africa, which was not what I, what I was looking for. And then obviously, Africa has given me the most extreme adventures of my life, both on both sides, both positive and negative. And uh, when the negative happened, when I was spending a night in jail, uh, thinking I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend 20 years in jail in Nigeria, this thought came to my mind, if I get out of this alive, I don't know when, I need to write this into a book and that's going to be my motivation to survive. And, uh, and I stuck to it. And, uh, and, and finishing the book really was a therapy for me to just forget about everything that happened because those were very painful years and with everything that happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and literally, I closed the chapter of my life and I was able to move on. Excellent. I have to say as a reader, because I did read the book, you had sent me a, a, a copy of it in English. Thank you so much. Was That's how I felt about reading it, that this was your 
it was cathartic for you that here, here, yeah. here it all is. And now let's move on, which clearly yeah. you have. But now everyone that's listening to this podcast may not have read the book. So I'm going to touch on a couple of points uh, just sure. so they can understand sort of what was going on. Um, one of the questions I was going to ask you is when you realize you're on the radar, but I want to actually go back to your childhood a little bit. It doesn't have to be a big deal, but just explain a little bit how that is still affected you then and affects you now because childhood was a little bit rough for you. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to write a book about my last 10 years, which is more all of my professional career, which are the most relevant. But mm -hmm. then once you start looking at everything from a perspective, you realize that what happened to you when you were a teenager had such a profound effect on you right now, which was an eye-opener for me. And this is why I decided I have to write about this. So long story short, I was this typical bullied kid. When you watch all those Hollywood movies about teenagers in high school, you have those beautiful girls, those guys which are popular playing football, Mm -hmm. And then those fat, nerdy guys, you know, you know what happens to them. So I was this fat, nerdy guy. The only way for me to talk to girls was to help them with maths. <laughs> and the only way to talk to the football playing guys was to be beaten up <laughs> and, and have my breakfast stolen. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I developed a lot of insecurities and, um, and complex and, uh, and, and also that internal need of having to prove the value to myself mm -hmm. and then to everyone else around. And then you just realize how powerful this motivation is in business, which makes you go into the other extreme because there's, there's no worse thing. There's no more powerful thing than being rewarded for feeling your insecurities. Mm -hmm. So by needing to make more money to buy another better car, you know, better suit, bigger apartment in order to, you know, feel my insecurities, I was rewarded. <laughs> So it's like a, like a perpetual mobile almost. And you realize that in, on short term, this is an amazing, powerful motivation in business. In the long term, it's going to kill you because there's no end to it. Which you explain really well in the book. And I'm, you know, I'm, as a reader, and very glad you went into your childhood. Because I think if you had started with your business career where you were in the finance company, was insurance yeah. or finance, long-term stuff? Yeah. It's, for retirement? Yeah, stock and insurance, yes. Yeah, okay. If you had started with that, I probably would have put the book down and said, egotistical maniac, I don't want to read this. But you had taken yeah. us along for the ride. You, you started out with your childhood and you made it very clear that you came to a conclusion that your insecurities were driving your behavior. So that was a really good place to and, uh, walk us through. And thank you for reading through those chapters because if you take, and that happened to me when I published this book, my publisher, my publisher expected this. He took one chapter of my book and published it for free. And oh my God, the shitstorm I got. <laughs> Which chapter was it? I think that was the, the second one. Exactly that part with the stock brokering, with the first big oh. money and everything. Because people read that chapter and they went absolutely ballistic. Like, what, is, what does he think about publishing a book like this? Because he, they thought that the whole book is like this. And only then after, you know, they read everything and the first reviews came to place. But yeah, I know what you mean because I went exactly through that shitstorm. Shit <laughs> of course. Basically, a guy that wants to be another Wolf of Wall Street, yeah? It's just exactly. so pathetic. <laughs> I'll tell, you, I'll tell you just on my side, a little quick story. I, I tell the quite a bit. My husband always laughs at me. Now, I sort of grew into myself as an adult woman, and I'm middle-aged now, but I was the geek in high school. Friends with everybody, but certainly I wasn't beautiful. I wasn't tall. I wasn't athletic. But my husband is six foot four and was. And I always joke about how we see the world through our own perspective. Mm -hmm. It took me years to overcome that just slightly geeky, I'm not really accepted window that I saw the world through thought how I saw people see me 
Keith mm -hmm. has walked into every situation in the 23 years I've known him expecting to be liked and accepted. Mm -hmm. He was a star on the, on the, every sports field there was, he was tall, good looking, and everyone yeah. liked him. He's got a heart of gold, but he approaches the world through that, through that lens. So and you, you project just, whatever you want to project there. Yeah. Exactly. The whole experience. Yeah. Doesn't matter that he's middle age. He sometimes gets a little overweight. He doesn't care. He just walks into the world expecting to be liked. <laughs> and so exactly. that part of your book really laid that out really well for the reader. Yeah. So yeah, brilliantly Thank done. You. And I, and I appreciated that very much. So those of you that haven't uh, read his book yet, don't read the review that sounds like it got put out there. Start at the beginning <laughs> of his story. So when did you sort of realize that you were on somebody's radar and this maybe wasn't a good thing once you got into that, I guess this would be more in the Nigeria. You've, you've left Poland. You've left that, that egocentric part of you. You tried yeah. to start the business with the, um, the funeral services and, and learned a lot. That was a little hard to read though, watching you struggle over and over again, but you came yeah. out the other end of it. Talk to us about a little bit about that journey now. Yeah, so long story short, first I had this amazing adventure of four years in Nigeria. Uh, I've been backed by the, the best investment funds you could think of, including Goldman Sachs, Rocket Internet, and so on. The company went public, and then I already was. I was this, you know, glorified guy, very, again, cocky, again, entrepreneur from Poland because he thinks he can do everything. I decided to stay in Nigeria, open another business. And they always tell you, if you're doing business as a foreigner in an exotic country, you want to you wanna find someone local that will be your guide, protection, if, if the bad guys, you know, mm -hmm. put you on your radar. What no one tells you is that if you don't choose the right person, he's actually becoming the, the, the guy you should be really afraid of. Mm. And it, 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 that's what really what happened to me. And, uh, and, and the, the way it happened is that I was this cocky CEO who thought he can do everything because of this last success that he just did. Because mm -hmm. you enter this field of thinking that you're always right. And obviously, I antagonized my business partners uh, by being just annoying and, and thinking I can do everything and the company will, will be run the way I want it and not listening to anyone else. That I take the, 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 the fault for. And, uh, you know, that's the reality. If you do business with someone that has been successful in Nigeria for 20 years, I mean, for them, bribing an Nigerian police, unfortunately, it's just another business tactic. And uh, that's where I underestimated them because at some point they decided they would take over the control of the company by removing me from the position and removing me from the country. And what's no better way to remove you from a country than to bribe the Nigerian police to, to, to want you to put you to jail <laughs> for stuff that you never did because you have really no, no significant chance of defending yourself. Right. So basically that's what happened. I pissed off my uh, local business partner. And because this is a very seasoned entrepreneur doing business in Nigeria for 30 years, I mean, he was doing business with the dictators in the 80s. Mm -hmm. For them, bribing a police just to get me out of the country just like that wasn't a problem. That's where I underestimated him. Where he underestimated me is I will decide to, to fight it uh, for as long as I can uh, fight it legally because I'm this, again, stubborn Polish guy. <laughs> I think that works in your favor when used positively and for good. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. So, so I mean, that's the, that's the background. Essentially, uh, as something that started as a normal conflict within an organization turns to be very nasty because the other side didn't care whether they're breaking the law to achieve their business goals or not. 
Coming from a free democratic country of Canada, and of course, we're very close with our U.S. neighbors. We have very similar attitudes uh, about certain things. This sort of stuff just shocks us. I mean, it's like watching a Jason Bourne movie. It's like, what do you mean you just bribed the police and they came for you? Yeah. What was your experience? Because you described very well as well coming, you were, you're significantly younger than I am, and you're coming out of uh, Poland, coming into its kind of uh, after communism type thing where it's growing and there's, there's, there's more opportunity. Were you expecting this? Did it come as a huge shock or were you slightly accepting of this? So North American, Polish background, Nigeria. Not at the time because I do come from communist Poland, but I was born in the late eighties. So um, I was like four years old when the whole communism to capitalism change happened. Mm-hmm. And that's where we had the 10 years of just wild west when right. fortunes were made in ways you don't want to know about. And I got into the adult life and professional career in the late 2000 when Poland was already a thriving economy, a, dem- a democracy, not so much now, <laughs> but back then we, you know, we've been in European Union for a couple of years. We've been in NATO for 10 years. So, I knew of this from some stories, but it never has reached me uh, directly. And then when we started those online businesses in Nigeria, for many years, we were under the radar of the bad guys because, you know, you, you, of course, we were doing business in a country which has a lot of opportunities, but also has a corruption problem. But mm-hmm. corruption problem was mostly related to the oil money, you know, to, to where the real problems happen. Okay. No one would care about this small online company. But at the moment when we became relevant, and that was a milestone when we started to promote ourselves in TV and on the billboards, mm-hmm. I mean, that's where everyone knew, okay, these online businesses are becoming big and relevant, and you get attention not only from clients, but also from the bad guys. So in a way, I, I entered the space of, 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 of you know, tough business and serious people, unprepared, thinking that I'm untouchable, because I, it kind of okay. missed me in Poland because I was too young. And then it missed me in Nigeria for a couple of years because no one paid attention to us in the beginning because this internet thing was, was new. No one cared about online companies. Mm-hmm. Which I, you tell in the, in the book how you struggle with that because really it was changing people's mindset. That just, it wasn't a thing like it has, was here in North America yet. It was just that yeah. little that bit behind all the time. Okay, while I was reading your book, uh, at the end, I was wondering if I'd missed something out of context. You had something, I'm probably going to say it wrong. You mentioned something called the Manitsky account. Can you explain that and how it relates to what was happening in Nigeria and the whole mess when you were, you know, basically being dethroned, I guess. Is, and you, you obviously clearly think that's a, you, you kind of relate to that. There was a lot of ego involved, a lot of yes. just um, naive untouchability a little bit, a lot of growth there. Yes, so, so let me give you the context here. So um, my arrest warrant from Nigeria in the end has landed in the global Interpol system. Interpol, mm-hmm. you've probably heard of it, global police, uh, 160 member countries, mm-hmm. very noble goal. Uh, when someone committed a crime in one country, you don't want him to walk freely in another country. Right. Uh, however, Interpol is facing similar problems nowadays to the problems that Facebook or Google or YouTube is facing. Imagine someone is posting your video, they have no right to do that. Mm-hmm. They don't want to take it down, even though you're asking them. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> Good luck with, you know, mm-hmm. talking to, to YouTube directly. They have millions of requests like this. They will, it will take you ages to take to get a response. And this is for uh, what business personas are taking advantage of. 
when your arrest warrant from a country like Nigeria is entered into Interpol global system and every Nigerian police station, basically every police station that has access to the internet of any member countries can do this. Your arrest warrant is now everywhere in the world. Everywhere you fly to, you will be stopped at the airport. And in, at best, you will be stopped for a couple of days until they tell you to go back to your house. You can't travel. Okay. At worst, they will extradite you immediately to Nigeria or to, okay. or to do whoever the, the Interpol comes from. And what can you do? You can only now appeal to Interpol HQ and wait sometimes up to three years until they analyze your case and maybe you know take it down in a forceful way by the HQ because the local police station doesn't want to do it because obviously it's a part of grounding you and not being able to perform your business. So you end up doing what the side that bribed the police wants you to do. So right. that's the context. Okay. And uh, the person that really made this uh, a huge case was a, a American British uh, investor and entrepreneur called Bill Browder. Uh, who in the early 90s has moved to Russia and at some point he was the biggest foreign investor in Russia. Basically, he was buying big companies in Russia, trying to clean them from corruption. The company value would go up and then he would make a lot of money out of this. At some point, he became a problem for Vladimir Putin because he was basically cleaning the, the businesses out of corruption and many people that were cleaned were Vladimir Putin's people. Right. And what happened to me happened to Bill Browder a couple of years ago, but at a much, much bigger scale. We're talking about problems. You know, my, my, I was accused of stealing $200,000. Bill Browder was accused of stealing $200 million. And also his lawyer was killed. And his lawyer was, his name was uh, Magnitsky. I don't remember his first name, but his last name was Magnitsky. Okay. So Bill Browder also had to run from Russia and he had to defend himself uh, from UK. He wrote a book about it, one of the most famous books about Interpol problems called Red Notice. And then he went on to a life mission to make sure that any dictators in anywhere in the world won't be able to take the money they stole from one country when they are ruling and mm -hmm. hide it in some other country. Like, you know, you stole it in Russia, you will hide it in the US or Switzerland. Mm. So uh, Magnitsky Act is enforced in the US, in the UK and many other countries. Basically, if there's a dictator that has been accused of uh, breaking human rights, his money will be frozen in the US. Okay. And that is the Magnitsky Act. And the way it's related to me is that when this thing happened to me, someone told me about Bill Browder and his book. Mm -hmm. I read his book and I had, you know, goosebumps when I read it in one night. And then the next day I just wrote him and uh, he helped me because he introduced me to his lawyer. So his lawyer, who was specialized in Interpol abuse cases, uh, was taking care of my case. Mm -hmm. So that's the uh, that's the connection. I don't remember why I mentioned the Magnitsky ad specifically in the book now. Pretty but much I just mention... because of the story. That's exactly how you yeah, yeah. talk about it in the book. Just what you laid out yeah. in the last few minutes. Absolutely. So I mentioned the book and also Bill Browder. Because, yes, you do. Uh, I had to, I, I was actually, uh, I was being helped by, by one of his lawyers. Uh, I thought that was amazing a, actually yeah, that when yeah. you reached out, he responded. Do you truly believe that if you had ended up in that Nigerian jail, because your life partner is from the Dominican Republic, and yeah. uh, I've watched you guys on social media, you're just too cute. But, <laughs> um, and congratulations that you have found someone like that. So she stood beside you, but some, there was a slight delay, and you ended up being in Poland when that red flag on your, on your passport got noticed, notified. Would you, do you truly believe you would not have made it out of that Nigerian jail if that's where they had caught you? 
Oh, I would have made it. So the plan for them, you know, I would, I guess I would be worthless dead or in Nigeria forever in the jail. The plan was to put me into jail mm -hmm. and hold me there for as long as it's needed uh, until I signed the papers they would give me to sign. And I knew, and I knew what would be in the papers. I would have mm -hmm. to resign from the board and I would have to sell the shares in the company for like $10. Right. That's what they wanted me to do. And this is why I had to stay out of Nigeria uh, uh, because that's what would happen to me. I would really have no chance of defending myself while being in Nigeria. Also because while I'm in jail, I have no access to the lawyer really they would stop me from contacting the lawyer i had no access to emails i can't prepare my defense mm -hmm. uh, my bank accounts were frozen which was part of that whole thing to stop me from being able to defend myself i mean for a year i just you know i used money that my friends and my family basically borrowed me to pay mm -hmm. the lawyers because at that stage i've been doing business for six years or five years in nigeria i don't remember now five mm -hmm. and and most of the money that i've made were on nigerian bank accounts because it's really hard to uh, to transfer your money from Nigeria to uh, to Europe uh, because mm. back then there was a problem with foreign exchange and so on and so on. So part of this arrest warrant was also an, a warrant at the bank uh, to freeze my bank account. So I can't really defend myself. And I also had to take the bank to court. I didn't only take the Nigerian police to court, but also the bank. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't want to give you know too much details of the story yeah. because it's really technical, but in the end, I'm now the first foreigner in the history of Nigeria that was stupid enough to take Nigerian police to court. And I won the case. The police owes me no money for damages, but that is irrelevant. That Nigerian court order, which I won in the end, mm -hmm. then helped me to win my case in France because that's where the headquarters of Interpol is. Right. Yeah, let's not ruin it because people still need to read the book. Yeah. It is a great yeah, story yeah. And, they, and they need to read it for sure. Um, and that was actually uh, something I wondered about when I was reading it. Why doesn't, doesn't he have money someplace else? <laughs> but you've just explained, it's hard to get it. So yeah. your money truly, they knew what they were doing. When they froze that all up, they basically ham, American expression, they hamstrung you. Have you ever been back? Are you allowed back in Nigeria? Or are you banned? Well, of, of, officially and technically, I'm a free man mm -hmm. because the, the arrest warrant was taken down. The Nigerian federal court, so the highest instant court, uh, told the local police that one police station is that really doesn't like me. One police station in the city doesn't like me right. for reasons. Let's say we don't know why. <laughs> um, and I've been to Nigeria twice till it all ended. But I have hmm. to tell you, um, I never post anything on social media, and uh, I'm never really excited as much as I as I was because. Um, it's it's just risky uh, when you have had some experience with someone that is powerful yes. I, and i does this doesn't only apply to nigeria by no means i am not i'm trying not to tarnish nigeria because if anyone is interested in my whole you know activity online when you watch my ted talks read my articles you will realize that i am preaching to do business in nigeria i still consider myself mm -hmm. as very lucky because nine out of ten cases for me, I did, tried 10 times, nine times I was super lucky. One time I was unlucky and it hit right. me hard. But statistically, I still think that Nigeria is one of the most amazing countries to do business with. I want to I wanna put it clearly. However, because of, you know, what I've been through, um, it, it's just, you know, very stressful to, to, to go through over it again. Like I was in jail and I was supposed to be extradited to Nigeria. And just because pure luck and some good lawyers, they, they stopped the whole thing. 
and uh, there's just so many so little things you can control when you're there unfortunately mm-hmm. when you have powerful you know enemies and and on top of everything not sure if you if you if you remember that from the book i have become this I think this is very relevant in the light of what's happening right now in the States and that, that awakening of, you know, Black Lives Matter and so on. Fair enough. Right? Racism has always been the case. We just mm-hmm. pretend that it doesn't exist at some point. And I knew that. It really hit me when I moved to Nigeria because I come from a very homogenic country. You know, everyone is white, Catholic. Mm-hmm. The first black person I've ever met in my life was the ambassador of Nigeria that he gave me the visa. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So I was really like... Uh, for me, it was a, a crash course of uh, of uh, mm, what's the word uh, you know of you know just learning that there are other people than you and there's there's so many other races cultures other... still below yeah exactly yeah. so many culture and racial problems and there were so many people like that didn't like me I did not know why but obviously it's because of the history you know white people have done many bad things in Africa and so on yes. and so on and so on. And at some point, I went public with my case because like I told you, I needed to win the case in Interpol. Mm-hmm. And Interpol has thousands of cases like this, but if you go to press, they don't like the press, they will take care of your case very fast. So I went publicly and then a year ago, I've made this whole drama that I've been, uh, I've been a victim of the corrupt Nigerian police. And unfortunately what has happened is that a lot of people that didn't know anything about this case in Nigeria just went after me for saying bad things about Nigeria. And, um, and at some point I have become this this representation of everything bad uh, that has been done to this nation by by white guys in the end. And, and there's this neo-colonialist guy, there's this white boy basically that came a couple of years ago to Nigeria, used his white privilege to make some money, and now he has the dignity to, to damage our PR even, even further. Right. So this Regardless is also of how much good you did or how much industry you created, the stigma. Obviously because they just cherry pick the things, yeah? Right. Of course. You know what they say, facts don't care about opinions, but what's worse is that opinions also don't care about facts. That's right. My son spent three years, almost two and a half years working in South Africa. He comes from Canada and not only in Canada, we we are in Western Canada where, you know, Asians and Indians are like, white people are not the majority in any way, shape or form uh, to going over there. And it was a culture shock for him. Uh, however, he met his lovely fiance there and they're both back home in Canada now. And so it was being, having her in our lives gave us this huge inside uh, picture that you just don't see. The news doesn't portray that there is, there's still a a long way to go for inclusion and all that yet to happen. But is Africa still, I mean, you did mention it. I believe you're doing, you were doing business in Johannesburg or we're doing something in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, I moved. Africa is still part of your heart. I I moved there two years ago, and uh, business-wise, most of my business activity right now is in South Africa. Okay. Um, I actually I'm semi-based in Cape Town because I travel between Barcelona and Cape Town. I always follow the sun. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's winter um, in Spain, and then I go back. Okay. Um, Yeah, I love this country for many reasons. Uh, But when we talk about cultural differences like the amount of pain the society has gone through the history of south africa is just so i mean from someone on the outside i'm 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 uh, i'm very excited i'm not really excited i'm very interested in the history of africa because it's such a complicated and troubled country in so many ways i mean i mean in 94 essentially they still had slaves yeah they mm-hmm. just abolished Absolutely, apartheid yes. in 94 so if you're looking for any nation when where slavery is as lively as possible obviously it is south africa 
Right. It's like as if Jim Crow just just ended, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have whatever is happening in the States, it's like so South Africa is like states with a magnet with glass. No, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that you know, you were a young child during that, but I was a young adult. And I remember, you know, they were making movies about it and it was all over the news and it was devastating. Now I have, I'm a British background. So between us and the, and the, and the Danish, we caused a lot of that issues in, you know, hundreds of years ago over there. And it's yeah. sort of hard, you know, I'm not wearing that mantle. It's my, it's my ancestry, but it wasn't me. But watching it all was just like how anyone can just feel another human being is less is beyond me. And then, and then say it all in the name of religion. Uh, it's it's always just been a little bit of a pet peeve. It's like if we're cre- if we're all creations and we're human beings, and that's that's the end of the sentence. Moving yeah. along after that, I watched you in a um, a podcast or something on Instagram. I caught a part of it, and you were talking about capital capitalism, and and also in your TED talk. Capitalism gets a bad rap. There's no two ways about it. Democracy is new. People, you know, go after my country and the states a lot as well sometimes, but. I think people just need to be educated, especially our youth. Democracy is new. <laughs> it's a hundred years old and we have thousands of years of history. Do you truly believe in capitalism, even though at its core it can be corrupted, that it is the answer for emerging markets? Um, it's a good question. So there's been studies that you can predict how long can a democracy be successful in a country depending on how rich the society was when it entered the democratic state. state. Oh, okay. And uh, democracy does not work and will not work in a society that is not educated and doesn't have the basic needs secured because Mm. then you just, you can't focus on anything long-term if you don't know if you're gonna survive through tomorrow. Okay. I mean, you know, when we talk about China, everyone is thinking, oh my God, how can you replicate that that model? You know, they they are censored, there's no human rights. No one cares about it. In Africa, everyone is looking at China as a role model because people have worked, they mm-hmm. can, they are safe, they're not hungry anymore, they've built, they've given them, given them a bus, they don't have to walk to school 20 kilometers anymore. It's just yeah. a totally different set of goals and motivations. I personally am, uh, 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 was the English word proponent or fan, yes. not the best one, for the lack of a better word, fan of democracy. Mm-hmm. But democracy itself does not mean anything. Democracy can only be installed uh, if, if education is coming together with it and, and society has its basic needs secured. I agree. Because then you have a reason to care yes. about something else. Exactly. How you achieve that state, I mean, the, the, the history shows that it's much harder uh, to become uh, educated and uh, and rich society uh, with a democracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it looks like there's a stage. There's this concept of this um, good-hearted dictator. Benevolent, benevolent dictator, dictator right? <laughs> in, this, in this book called Dead Aid. Um, so I kinda, I'm trying to be a realist here. And then when you look at capitalism again, obviously the biggest problem right now with with the world the global challenges we're facing seem to have a source in the monster that has is now that now the capital has turned to mm-hmm. i just do believe that instead of just forgetting about the whole concept of capitalism we have to find a way to tweak it okay. uh, um the problem with capitalism is that you know companies are becoming too big and mm-hmm. they're becoming multi multinational while the way we are organized is still really tight into our countries mm-hmm. so how can you control an international organizations if you don't have if you have no international government that right. can 
because they're just on a different level. You have this local country and this international. So I'm not an expert here. I'm just giving you my opinion. Mm -hmm. I just do believe that there has to be a balance of power. You have multinational organizations that the world government also has to be stronger. And uh, we have to be really stronger and more aggressive when it comes to anti-monopoly practices because monopolies really, monopolies really destroy capitalism and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you have this problem of internet, which really started as something that would democratize the world. Now we see that it's just magnifying monopolies on so many levels. Yes. And, and you've got to take care of it again, as well. But then again, the law we're living into has been really set up 200 years ago when we really didn't have phones yet. So how can you use the law from 100 years ago to deal with something that has been uh, that has come up with uh, a couple of years ago. So I believe that the problem is not in capitalism itself. And now we have to go back and search for a new system. Uh, we just have to uh, feel the uh, catch up with where technology has taken us and when internet where international corporations have taken us. Yes, and that's always been my belief. Technology advanced faster than our ability to manage it and be socially responsible. Excellent. I, I, I can't agree more. Excellent. Talk to me about your foundation. Oh, that's another story. So <laughs> um, when I decided to write this book, I really didn't want to be accused of making money of my tragedy, tragedy or okay. because it's not like it really made me stronger. I'm happier, stronger than ever and more peaceful with myself. I didn't want to be accused of making money of the book because I have other reasons to, to, uh, to make money. Uh, so I decided that everything Every money that I'm getting out of this book, as long as soon as as well as, well as uh, my speaking engagement, will mm -hmm. go into a charity model. Okay. And then I approached I approached charities the way an investor approaches startups. Show me your PNL. Where are you getting your money from? What are the long-term effects of your uh, um, you know, activities, organization, mm -hmm. and so on? And let me be the judge. And oh my God. The, the rabbit hole I got myself into when I started analyzing the way charities work nowadays. Right. Basically, it's okay. Without going uh, too too deep, they are not focused in large part. They're still amazing charities, but they're not focused on solving the goal. Charities models are extremely well at solving rapid problems. Like there's a war, there's a million refugees. Right. We need to take care of them. Charities are great for this, but they won't solve systemic problem. Yeah. Just like current medicine can save your life if you had a car accident. Mm -hmm. but will not save you from cancer or diabetes if you don't fix your lifestyle. Exactly. Um, and then I, and I realized that, you know, they just, they enforce the negative image of, for example, Africa, because they put ads in TV with kids with big bodies. They don't mm -hmm. show nice cities. They scare off my investors, you know, and, uh, and they enforce the negative image. So I was like, okay, if, if I want to give the money into charity, I need to open this charity on my own. It's going to be always a small one, but it's a good thing because the smaller the charity, the less people involved, the smaller probability of you of your money being stolen, right? And I think even in the US, there's a law that says you can't spend more than fifty percent on, on on costs. And I'm like, why okay. do you even have to have to have a law for this? That kind of tells you something about the about the. Well, there was a time when I was a young adult that some of these charities were being busted open. That eighty to ninety percent of what they were getting was being spent on administration, and ten cents of every dollar was getting to where it needed to go. And so that yeah. you know that's just that's just scandal as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think there's an issue. Another thing came to my mind. Um, a lot of charities are focused on just helping in a way that it's easy to share on social media or it's easy to share to your donors. Like we, mm -hmm. we have bought this 1000 laptops or we have given them mosquitoes nets and then you can make a photo, put a nice press release and so on. 
But yeah. no one talks about the fact that you have sent mosquitoes nets, so you made the local mosquito net producer bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you focus on that one-time short help instead of long-term uh, help. So we decided that instead of helping once or twice to a large group of people, we will focus on a smaller group of people and we help them. We will help them as long as it's needed until they become financially dependent themselves. See uh, a long-lasting uh, result. And then mm-hmm. maybe they will be, they won't need my help anymore. And maybe they will be thankful and they will now help the foundation so we can help another person. So it's like a butterfly effect, you know? a ripple effect. Yes. And then my girlfriend came in and she said, well, let's focus on young girls in, in uh, underdeveloped regions. And I asked why. And then she says, well, um, she's passionate about women empowerment. That's her background mm-hmm. because she also comes from a very underdeveloped region. But that's another story. But then she says, I mean, if you help uh, women in poor regions, three things happen. An educated woman has a high chance of getting a job or running a company. Mm-hmm. And I think we already have enough data that shows more women in companies makes better companies. Then um, an educated woman most likely will get a better job. She will have to have less kids because in poor countries, you need to have 10 kids or 20 kids because that's your, that's your really insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to have less kids. So you solve the problem of uh, overpopulation mm-hmm. because they're just not going to have so many kids. And then, even if they have kids, if they are, if the parent is educated, if the mother is educated, she will make sure the kid is educated as well. Excellent. The ripple effect. So it's like, yeah. It's like you have, you're doing one thing and you're kind of making three things happen. Mm-hmm. So I really love that. And, um, and that's why we decided to first focus on uh, Borno State in Nigeria, which mm-hmm. is where the Boko Haram is very active. You probably mm. heard about the kidnapping of Chibo girls. That's yes. what, where it happened. So there's an orphanage, a school for orphans, mostly girls. And we started with basics, like they didn't have even a roof and chairs. Um, so we started with the basics because we have a, a, um, some befriended foundation there. And I also know people from World Food Program that go there from time to time. And uh, the plan is to first start, establish the school with a proper infrastructure and then choose the best, uh, the best learners, like the best girls in mathematics. And... Uh, kind of give them scholarships and, uh, and help them get a job as an accountant or web developer or whatever this is. So maybe in the long term, they just become financially independent. That's the, that's the long-term vision. You know? okay. Whether this is going to be 10 kids or five girls or 50 girls, it, it really depends on you know, uh, how much money we'll be able to raise over time. Uh, but even if this is one girl, I still consider this as a success. I can't help everyone, but I believe that if everyone helps someone, we're going we're gonna to be good. <laughs> Excellent. So a couple of things there that I can take out of that is folks, listeners, buy the book because the, that's where it's, it's the money's going to charity. You'll get a great story. Correct. You'll, you'll definitely learn something and probably have something shined on your own life that you, you might need to learn from. Uh, secondly, they can give directly to the charity through your website. Yes, yeah. Chasing Black Unicorns. That's okay. the website for the book. Uh, or mayafoundation.com. Maya-foundation, I think, mm-hmm. is the website. Yeah, it's all connected. Yeah, okay, And I'll you can see activity. All the details are, are there. So thanks so much. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, psychologists that, uh, you know, they always describe how men and women are different. You know, men go out and, and just historically they're the warriors they're the fighters and women are more about the village so my attitude is i'm kind of with your girlfriend educate the women because they're more globally minded they will ensure that those around them are educated and that was something that definitely proved true at least in this particular case my future daughter-in-law she was a principal in a small school in south africa because all school there you Mm -hmm. pay for 
all of her charity work outside of her job as that school principal for this primary school was educating black women, you know, that lived in right in, out in those shanty towns, because when the women had purpose in education, you're right. They were more likely to everyone ensure yeah. everyone did. That's right. They fought for that. Whereas the male female dynamic is just, we just react to the world a little differently. So cool. I'm, I'm really was very much on board with that, with you on that one. So what's next for you now? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. So one of the homework that I had after the book is that I got to find a new thing for myself and it's going to have to be a long one because the book made me realize that all my businesses were really in three year cycle, you know, ah. three year here and then I would move to another business and okay. you can't really build anything significant in three years. Like uh, even Facebook, which seems like an overnight success mm -hmm. has been built for many, many, many years. And I always thought that my personality will change when I get older but it doesn't it just it's just who i am you know you have this <laughs> take my word for it it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't okay no i know <laughs> so you just want to instead of just fighting with yourself and and it's very painful to work on your weaknesses but there's this new school saying okay find someone that will feel your weaknesses you focus on your strengths and make mm -hmm. them even better so i promised myself that whatever next i'm gonna get involved in it's gonna be a project for 10 years Okay. And that's scary and exciting in a way. And um, it took me almost a year. During that year, I published the book. I did a little bit of, you know, book promotion. And that was nice, but I don't want to be a book author. Okay. Uh, that's, that's not the life I want to have, although it's an amazing life path, uh, but not for me. And, uh, and I want to, you know, I want to enter a business where you're making money, um, but also egoistically, you feel like you're doing something well. For mm -hmm. me, Africa was, was, had that thing because um, you're not just building another app for millennials to spend their time on uh but you kind of you know we're solving tangible issues uh, and that's cool and and right now it seems like i'm really getting myself involved in and falling in love with, with green energy let's put all those green washing aside i think there's a big revolution coming in in terms of what we're doing with natural resources climate change is finally becoming a mass mass media problem as well mm -hmm. uh, the technology of solar power is becoming way and way more affordable than it ever used to I mean, I don't see anyone That's a great having, thing. Yeah. Especially in your I mean, part of the world, when on this below the equator where there's tons of sun, it should be ruling down there. It should be the source of power. It should have more and most power. Yeah, um, that's true. Because people in, in, the, in the northern and western hemisphere, they go green solar because they want to be ecological. I call them the Tesla driving vegans. Exactly. Uh, Mind well, we've got Africa, hydroelectric power coming out of our ears. You know, exactly. As backup. But in Africa, you, you kind of go solar because, I mean, there's no, there's no alternative yet. You have no power from the grid. Yeah? And the solar energy seems like the only option that allows you to have it in your own house. I mean, I can't imagine everyone having a micro nuclear power plant in your base basement. Yeah? <laughs> but solar can be accessible for everyone. And um, I've done a small investment in, in a Swedish company that is involved into solar. Basically, we want to give Tesla roofs a run for their money and build a competition for them. Okay. It's always good to have two players. And, mm -hmm. and long story short, I'm getting myself more and more involved into this business because it, it's starting to look in a more and more clearer way for me that this is my next 10 year challenge to, to do something big with them. So I, I had, no, I've, I've been in Africa for eight years doing online businesses in Africa. And that's okay. my first big bet, huge big bet. But I feel like I need another one <laughs> and it's, it's going to be uh, solar power. Uh, yeah, that, that's, 
looks like my ten, next 10 years. Actually, Hopefully no Interpol this time. No, I, yeah, that would be good. Although, you, you know, in 10 years, it could make for a different book. Or by the time you reach my age, you can write a new one. Yeah. <laughs> my, my plan's 10 years, takes me to 65. I'm good. I'm, I'll be 65 years young. So, yes, there is still lots and lots of opportunity to start something new. That is one change, right? Uh, it used to be that you're, I don't know, you're 30, you're 40, you're 50. It's like, okay, kind of have to go slow now. Yeah, it's a retirement time. But uh, no. class quality has progressed. Business has changed so much. You can start thinking all over again, again, when you're 40 or when you're 50. It's just yeah. so cool. Retirement should be something you choose to do because you feel like you've accomplished all you need to accomplish, not because the government said, here's your check, you're 65. I spent yeah. 28 years in the accounting industry and I left it behind just trying something brand new. And it keeps, That's great. Me, it That's keeps so me young. <laughs> it keeps, and it gets me That's to talk so to people like you around the world. I mean, in a so, way, you never want to retire, yeah? You just, no. it, your, work, your activity just changes the form. It's not a job per se anymore. You just, exactly. you're just, you always be doing something. You always be building something, yeah? It's not just from paycheck to paycheck anymore. That's not the goal, yeah? And that's, that's what's cool. Exactly. We are so, my listeners and I, thank you so much for being on the show today. Please, again, everyone, I'll have everything in the show notes. And we really encourage you, please, to support the charity. Those of us in North America, we live a very privileged, very, very privileged life. And sometimes we forget. If one thing COVID-19 has shown us over the last three months is that, one, taking all the cars off the road did make a change in the environment. So that, you know, no one can argue anymore that we cannot change things. Things yeah. can be changed. And it'll be people like you in this generation, Eric, that will make that happen. That's so nice. Thank you so much. It was a great chat. I don't even know when the time has passed. And that's always a great indicator of a conversation. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye, love. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda. Stay connected with us directly through livingwellwithshell.com. You can also join the discussion on Twitter at livingwellwithshell and Instagram at www.instagram.com slash livingwellwithshell. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through shelley at livingwellwithshell.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Thank you. And remember, willpower will only get you so far if you don't have a plan.